Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the I Have for Evolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? science for agriculture and food pretty much my entire career of now over 30 years and uh, as of last year we got heavily involved with the industrial hemp pilot program here in North Carolina uh, we do have a testing laboratory uh, that we started about four years ago in Durham and again we are testing all sorts of stuff uh, agriculture and food related and Beer is just a liquid form of food, so we work with a lot of craft breweries, farmers, berry uh, farmers, sweet potato farmers, tobacco farmers, uh, but also food producers, beverage producers, and uh, hmm? louder. I'm not sure I can do much louder. Okay. Um, yeah, and as of. Uh, Definitely this year, uh, we got heavily involved in the industrial hemp testing. We are working closely with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. As a matter of fact, this year we won a contract from them to do all the compliance testing uh, that has to be done in order to be compliant with the pilot program rules. Make sure your THC levels are below 0.3%, otherwise it's called something else. Um, <coughs> So we do all that testing on behalf of the state, but we also do uh, all sorts of testing directly for farmers, uh, for processors, uh, for end product retailers, and uh, sometimes even for end users, customers. So um, <coughs> why is it important uh, to test your hemp? The first uh, thing I already told you, uh, you have to be compliant uh, with the laws uh, in order for the crop to be called industrial hemp your THC level has to be below 0.3 percent um, but that's only the beginning of the story because uh, in the end you also want to produce a high quality product right and uh, so the next thing we test for is cannabinoid profiles uh, that tell you and let me start out this way. So there are about over a hundred different cannabinoids out there. They are all compounds, molecules that are closely related to each other, uh, and they belong to the broader family of cannabinoids. But typically you only find about 10 to 12 of them in relevant amounts in your crop. And there are 10 to 12 that you find pretty much in all cannabis plants. And uh, and we can do the profiling. Uh, you actually can see one of the instruments that we use for that displayed there, but in the Shimatsu booth. Uh, but Shimatsu also has some larger pieces of equipment that set you back like uh, close to half a million bucks per instrument. 
uh, that uh, can do a lot more than just cannabis testing, uh, and we utilize some of those as well. So why is it important uh, to test for quality? Because in the end, you want to produce a high-quality product, right? And when you uh, grow a crop, you want to grow it to the highest quality that you possibly can. And that's the first thing we do. So quality, one quality parameter is uh, how much of the certain relevant cannabinoids do you have in the crop. And uh, the most prevalent one in industrial hemp is, of course, your CBD, CBDA, which is a carboxylic acid form of CBD. And then you have some CBG and CBGA. And the rest of them are pretty much in smaller amounts. So those are your main four ones. And then, of course, you also have to look at your THC and THCA. Uh, <coughs> so those are the two that are relevant for your compliance question. They are also important uh, for uh, the other growers that grow not industrial hemp. Um, and they call essentially that parameter potency. Um, although I hear the term used uh, a lot now in the context of CBD and CBD potency, I'm not sure if that's really such a good term uh, because if you are trying to market your product as having medicinal value or nutritional value, uh, in most nutritional uh, supplements, you don't find the term potency used very much. You find concentration levels, you find dose levels, dosage levels. Uh, that is, uh, in that uh, market, the preferred terminology. So, something for you all to think about how you want to coin that term going forward. Because you're still at the beginning, uh, and there's a lot of flexibility in how you can call things, how you can do things, how you can test things. Um, the other quality parameters are, so this is uh, what I call the good stuff. Uh, we test for other good stuff in other, uh, in other uh, crops, in other food products, but in hemp uh, it's predominantly about the cannabinoid profile and the other quality parameter is your terpene profile. So hop, um, Hemp, just like its closely related cousin hops, uh, has a very strong uh, collection of different aroma and flavor compounds. So hops is used in beer brewing to give the beer flavor, and uh, hemp actually has a lot of the very same terpenes that you find in hops. You actually find humulones, uh, you find uh, geraniols, you find farnesols, uh, and other terpenes uh, that give very characteristic flavors. And when you go into the barn where they just were processing some hemp yesterday, you get a good whiff of what I'm talking about, and you probably know better than I do what it smells like. So those are the other two, um, <coughs> well, th those are the two main quality criteria in hemp uh, on the good side. And then you also have to talk about the other side. So uh, whenever you make a product that in the end is being ingested by people or animals, 
or being even applied topically as a cream or a salve, you want to make sure uh, that there's nothing in there that can do any damage or that can be not so good for you. So uh, one of the things, for example, we test for is heavy metals, uh, like arsenic, cadmium, uh, lead, and uh, mercury. Thank you. Um, those are the four most prevalent uh, heavy metals that you can find in hemp. How do they get in there? They get in there from the soil. And why are they in the soil? So there are different, uh, there actually used to be arsenic containing pesticides uh, that were particularly used on tobacco uh, years ago. I don't think they're that popular today anymore, but they're still in the soil. And hemp does one thing very well. It pulls all sorts of stuff out of the soil. And it does so very effectively and efficiently. So you find uh, heavy metals uh, in larger amounts. And one problem with the heavy metals is they don't go away. So they will survive your extraction process. They will survive your decarbing process, any kind of heat process uh, that you employ those heavy metals are there to stay. If you extract your hemp, uh, the heavy metals wind up in your extract. Uh, if you concentrate your extract later on by distilling off your solvents, guess what? You're also concentrating your heavy metals. So you can have quite significant amounts of those in your final product. That's why it's important to test early on how much do you introduce into your final product through the hemp flower that you use in your extraction process? How clean are your extracts? Uh, and how much winds up in your final product, whatever that may be. Is, um, I'm not sure if I'm using it properly, phytoremediation. If one, is that the word? Uh, if you yeah. were to plant it, would it then, it, it's in a bad, whatever, uh, arsenic and whatever else, bad and heavy metal concentrated field, would it, I know it does it, does it take it out? I mean, so then the next year it'd be fine, or what does this mean? Well, uh, we actually have two clients uh, that uh, use hemp, industrial hemp, for soil remediation. So they have some heavily contaminated soils uh, that have some significant pesticide residues and heavy metal residues, and they are using hemp to clean it up. Now, they are not going to be able to do much with the hemp that they harvest because it's chock full of undesirable stuff. Couldn't they use it for a different industry, not food? Yeah, they could use it for fiber, fiber they could use it yeah. for, you know, hempcrete or whatever, build houses out of it, yeah. or car door insulation. The best thing to use it for is fuel for your factors and biofuels. Yeah, biofuels, maybe another application, uh, but not, uh, not to be used in uh, to make uh, ingestible products or things that you smoke or eat or drink. So if you're testing your soil and your soil comes out where you don't really have a whole lot of heavy metals, mm -hmm. but then you grow your crop, I mean, is it still going to pull, like, is your soil test going to be accurate enough to predict whether you're going to have a lot of heavy metals in your crop? Yeah, so we don't have enough experience to see how much of an extraction factor uh, the hemp actually has. Yeah. So I don't know how a certain level of 
let's say, lead in your soil translates into levels of lead that later on you find in your hand. I haven't seen enough data on that yet. So that would be interesting to look at, uh, especially if you find uh, if you find heavy metals in your hand. Uh, pick up a soil sample from the same field, preferably close to this plant where you collected the sample, uh, and have that tested as well. The other uh, way heavy metals can get into your hem is through irrigation water. Uh, in particular lead, uh, if you have any kind of lead pipes on your property, uh, or if uh, you draw it from a farm pond where you used to do a lot of duck hunting in the old days with lead shot, uh, you may find the occasional molecule of lead in your irrigation water. So <laughs> the question was how many uh, samples that test uh, for CBD uh, also have heavy metals and pesticide residues in it? Farmers are going to test this year when they they pull their crop in for yeah. COA, and yeah. all, also I noticed they doesn't require. No. It just requires whether it's a THC level. They don't require the heavy metals and all right. that. But I can tell you, I can uh, out there that sets any kind of thresholds or uh, acceptable limits in hemp or in other hemp-derived products. Uh, it's actually in the absence, uh, you see that quite frequently, in the absence of established official standards, what do people do? They come up with unofficial standards. They make up their own. Uh, in this case, it's mostly the hemp processors who set their own quality criteria, and they actually ask uh, the hemp growers uh, if they want to sell the hemp uh, to them, uh, have it tested first. And they typically want to test it tested for uh, heavy metals, cannabinoid profile, um, pesticide residues, sometimes terpene profile, depending on what the processor wants to do with the final product. And uh, we get increasingly demand for um, mycotoxins. Anybody heard about mycotoxins before? So mycotoxins are naturally occurring toxins. They are made by fungi or fungus. Think mushrooms, uh, but also think fungus that may infect your soil or your crop. Uh, and um, even though the fungus itself may not survive your extraction process and your refining process to final product, the mycotoxins oftentimes do. They are pretty tough little molecules and they stay in the process oftentimes all the way to the end. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't matter if you grow your crop conventionally or organically. Your mycotoxins can be present in either one. As a matter of fact, there are some studies out there that mycotoxins, certain type of mycotoxins, can be more prevalent in organically grown crops because uh, some of the fungicides actually suppress uh, mycotoxin produced in fungi. There's also the other side. Uh, sometimes fungicides can actually, by knocking out, uh, for example, powdery mildew, uh, they can uh, 
make uh, the mycotoxin fungus thrive because you just knocked out their competition. So uh, just because you're using fungicides doesn't mean you can suppress mycotoxins. And the only way you can figure out if you have a mycotoxin problem or not is test for it. You test first? Hmm? Soil test? No, soil test in itself won't help you because it may be uh, that the fungus is in your crop or on your crop and the uh, mycotoxins get in there in the crop, not through the soil. Depends on which mycotoxin we are talking about. So some of them are pretty strong carcinogens. Some of them fall into the CRM class, meaning uh, cancerogen, uh, um, reproductive or mutagenic. So they are all chronic effects, long-term effects. There are some mycotoxins that are now being associated with Parkinson's disease and ALS. Um, there are, uh, and the bad news is, they're everywhere. Uh, in the EU, they have relatively strict standards, uh, and testing has been done for quite a while, and the e e uh, European Union has rejected uh, relatively large shipments of certain types of food products. I remember pistachios at one point, you couldn't buy pistachios in Europe because the countries they came from, everything a lot was infested with mycotoxins and didn't pass the legal limits uh, that the European Union had set. So it is a problem, but you also have, aside from the chronic effects, you have acute effects. There's one toxin in particular that is uh, called vomit toxin for a reason. <laughs> so very immediate, uh, you get sick to your stomach uh, and you feel very nauseous. And uh, it can be uh, it can be fatal. I was just going to ask, how do you get mycotoxins in your plant? I mean, where do they come from? From the air? From the they from the so the the fungal spores uh, can be um, in the soil. They can be in the air. They can be in neighboring crops. Uh, they mostly thrive uh, when it's cooler, humidity, they like humidity, they like it dark, uh, they don't like bright sunlight so much, uh, but you never know when you have the right conditions uh, for a mycotoxin. So the only way to figure out uh, whether you have an issue or not is you test for it. And a lot of folks tell you, oh yeah, we test for mycotoxins, and they test for one out of or two or three or four, or just one class, like the aflatoxins. Uh, we are currently running a screen of 21 different microtoxins from totally different families of toxins, of molecules, and uh, we do that at very low detection limits because some of these are very toxic even at very low levels. <laughs> No. There are some that are perfectly well extracted with supercritical fluid extraction. As a matter of fact, there are published methods that use exactly that extraction technology to get the mycotoxins out of the plant matrix and make it measurable in the mass spectrometers. So supercritical fluid is actually a relatively non-selective 
extraction solvent, similar to ethanol. Ethanol will extract them just fine. Yeah, you find mycotoxin on all sorts of crops. You find them on cereals. Uh, that's where some of the largest problems were observed, especially if the cereals were stored in silos for an extended period of time. Uh, there's one story that uh, at the onset of the Second World War, uh, the Russian military opened their grain silos to feed the military horses, and they managed in one month to kill over 100,000 horses uh, due to mycotoxin infestation. Not really. The, uh, the freezing process will do nothing to the actual toxin. It may kill the fungus, uh, so you won't. It, it will stop producing more. Uh, but the toxins that already have been produced and are in your crop, they are there to stay. So, uh, what drying process you use at that point, once the toxins have been produced, doesn't matter. So it helps to keep uh, your raw material dry quickly uh, or frozen. Uh, the fungus doesn't like to grow when um, at freezing temperatures. So it's a way to preserve it, uh, but you won't kill it. What's that? So it, it sounds like the, the testing for the microtoxins is, say, like the, the whole bud affected if you remove the, say, the fungus part that you can see visually, you remove that part and have the other part where you can't see it anymore. <laughs> Would that likely test high in the um, microtoxins because it was part of that same cluster, or is that Yeah, so some of the fungus you may be able to see with the naked eye. A lot of times you're not able to see it. It's uh, small amounts uh, that even can be inside your, your crop and not just on the surface. And it's usually not evenly dispersed over your entire field. So uh, you do have somewhat a dilution factor um, when, you know, you have the whole field. It's unlikely that your whole field will be uh, infested with uh, the fungus. It's probably just portions of it and only portions of the plant. But it's very difficult to figure out which part is infested and which is not. Uh, but it brings me to another very important point when you do testing. Uh, one, th one question I always get is, how do I pick a sample? How do I create a sample? And the sample has to be representative for what you want to test for. So if you want to know uh, what is the average mycotoxin level in a field, you have to pick su sufficient number of flowers from different parts of your field. Uh, evenly dispersed, uh, as evenly as you can, from the top of the plant, from the middle of the plant, from the bottom, uh, and uh, that will give you kind of a composite mixed sample that hopefully is representative for your entire lot, which does not prevent you from still having a small patch where you may have an extra strong infestation, and if you somehow manage to harvest that so uh, selective and it winds up let's say in, in in a particular extract because or uh, you bake brownies with it some of your brownies may have a lot more mycotoxin in it than others so do you live in a climate and are growing in a climate where it's cold in the winter does the freezing kill the fungus it suppresses it usually uh yeah and uh you know when 
it, it, it hardly depends on the conditions. It's very difficult to predict. But in general, you can say if you have well aerated crop, and uh, as a hemp grower, you already have an advantage because you uh, grow your plants pretty far apart if you grow them for CBD. Uh, so they are usually very well ventilated. Uh, they are very well exposed to sunlight, which the fungus doesn't like. Uh, they are exposed to moisture, though. So if you are in a humid place like North Carolina in the summer, uh, you can have fungus on your crop. And right now, there's, uh, as you probably know, there are no fungicide registered for uh, authorized use on hemp. So uh, nothing in terms of chemicals you can use. You can use some of the biological uh, fungicide that are exempt from registration. Those uh, you probably can use. Essentially, find find a uh, a solution that where you can um, find a different use that is not leading to ingestion by humans or animals. Yes. And after and uh, afterwards, and uh, if it's not being ingested by humans or whatever, can it still be sold for fiber? It should be possible so to so sell it for fiber. So in theory, a farmer could uh, uh, grow for fiber at the same time as cleaning out their toxic waste. They probably could, but you when you grow for fiber, you grow totally different. Uh, than you grow for CBD. I mean, you space your crop much closer together uh, and you usually machine harvest it. There are some simple test kits out there that I'm aware of for arsenic and for lead. I'm not aware of any portable ones for cadmium or mercury. And, and they wouldn't test down to the levels that, that our uh, instruments can test. And you also have to find a way uh, to release any kind of bound uh, heavy metals. So the heavy metals may not just be there uh, in their pure form. They may actually be bound in certain, let's call it molecules, inside the plant or the soil. And you actually have to use a, we use a microwave-based uh, acid extraction or digestion process to uh, solubilize all the heavy metals that are there that in the end your hemp plant would find if they are there. So uh, it's difficult to do that with a portable test. So when you're talking microtoxins in the soil from that plant, will they live the next year? So if, you, if it comes out that your plants have microtoxins, and then the next year, can you go back and replant, or is it always going to yeah. live in your soil like black? No. So most of the mycotoxins come from fungal infections of your crop, so they will be gone so for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So let's talk about pesticides for a little bit. How do pesticide residues get into your hemp and hemp-related products? Well, there are numerous ways how that can happen. Again, it can happen through the soil because maybe you have grown tobacco. Uh, on that field before, or cotton, uh, or blueberries, 
all of them are heavy users of registered pesticides. <coughs> and these are different for every state. So, you know, when you send uh, your samples off to labs that, for example, in California, they test according to California pesticide list, uh, that's totally meaningless for North Carolina, because North Carolina utilizes totally different pesticides for their crops than California. Uh, you, one of uh, our competitors is based in Massachusetts. They offer a pesticide residue screen. They screen for, I think, 12 or 14 different pesticides that are, uh, I don't know if they are legal to use in Massachusetts on medical marijuana or re recreational marijuana, but that's somehow the state of Massachusetts came up with a list of these compounds. They're totally meaningless for North Carolina because you're growing totally different crops here and you're using totally different pesticides here. And uh, we are running a screen that covers right now over 160 different pesticides. We are in the process of uh, beefing that up to 500 because in the end, you want to know what's in your crop. Well, cotton is very popular, uh, but also sweet potatoes. Um, so uh, actually, North Carolina grows a very large variety of different crops. And therefore, you have a lot of different pesticides registered for different uses here. And they can wind up in your soil. They can wind up in your irrigation ponds. Uh, and. Uh, and they can drift over from your neighbor's field. So there's all sorts of ways. Uh, and somebody forgets uh, that they're not supposed to spray stuff on hemp. Uh, and uh, they spray it, and then you'll find it. So different tests have different prices. Uh, so the pesticide screen for these 160 pesticides uh, we are offering right now for $200 uh, per sample. Uh, the heavy metal screen is $110 per sample. The cannabinoid screen, $75. Terpene profile, $75. What am I forgetting? Organic so uh, residual organic solvents, uh, $80. And uh, yeah, I think that's the basic battery. Uh, the mycotoxins are, uh, yeah, for the 21 mycotoxins, we charge uh, $200. So if you want the whole battery, you wind up uh, just south of $800, yes, per sample. So neonicotinoids, but we see them. So we analyze for neonicotinoids. They're a group of insecticides uh, that got a lot of bad press recently because some folks associate them with bee colony collapse disorder. Yeah, so uh, we certainly can test for that. We test a lot of honey for that. We even test dead bees uh, for neonicotinoids, uh, the whodunit kind of deal. Uh, there's a lot of research being done on GMO. I'm not aware of any GMO research in the context of hemp yet, um, but um, probably just a matter of time. I don't know. Uh, but um, yeah, so I'm not aware of any genetically modified hemp. Do you think that uh, down the road that it's back in the tobacco industry is already doing it. There are whole laboratories just focused on tobacco testing, and they test for the whole battery of tests. They test for mycotoxins, they test for pesticides, for heavy metals, nicotine, of course. 
And uh, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's mostly the tobacco companies that do that on their own. I don't know what the state requirements are. Um, it's an excellent question. So we definitely go to, when we give uh, a percentage, percent weight uh, is, is one of the values we uh, report. Uh, that we do definitely to, I want to say two decimals. So your legal limit is 0.3 for the THC, and I believe we report one more decimal. Uh, for the state samples, we do the same thing. So we test down to 0.01 uh, is our lower limit of quantitation, and our upper limit is 1%. And everything that's above that is just reported as greater 1%. That's for THC, but we, we do the same when we, so that's for the state report, uh, when we uh, do for private customers like you all, uh, we uh, report every single cannabinoid that we analyze for, so right now 10 or 11 different cannabinoids. So in that cannabinoid sample report, I would see like if I have 14% CBD, and 0.04% THC, all that information would be in that one. Correct. And you even can get more information. So since we know that THCA can convert to THC, we calculate from the values that we have for the individual cannabinoids, we also ca calculate the total THC level, which is kind of a combined and corrected value for THC, and we do the same thing for CBD. So you find at the bottom of your table, you find two additional lines, one for total THC and one for total CBD. Just to confirm the state requirement is just based on L9, right? Correct. And uh, interestingly enough, the way the state rules are written, they do not specify exactly which method is to be used. And this raises another question that actually becomes more and more important in this whole discussion of quality uh, is how do you measure? And there are at least 20 different methods that I can think of without having to think too hard how I can measure cannabinoid levels in hemp. And I can get 20 different results. And every single result is correct. There's not a single result wrong. It's just a different result produced by a different method for a different purpose. And uh, it, in the end, it depends on what do you want to measure for. And when it comes to, you know, the whole thing gets even more interesting when money is getting involved. So if uh, the hemp producer, or the hemp processor is paying you based on your CBD content, well, I just told you I can find 20 different ways to measure CBD content. And it starts with, at what, what moisture level do you measure? And do you measure just the flower, or do you measure the flower with some leaves and stems mixed in? How dry is dry? Because it all matters when you measure your hemp concentration or your cannabis, cannabinoid concentration. So, and already we've had some marvelous discussion where a grower gave us a sample that they collected in the field, 
we analyzed it, we gave the grower back a certificate of analysis. The processor who is going to buy the hemp said, no, no, I do my own C of A, sends it to another lab, they come back with a totally different number because they made it something totally different. And now you have a very interesting discussion going on. And in the end, uh, I would advocate uh, that probably through an industry association, like you have the North Carolina Industrial Hemp Association, uh, Blake Butler is here somewhere, he is heading uh, that club at the moment, and the association is kind of working for all of you together, everybody who is involved in the whole hemp processing value chain, from farmer to testing labs like us, to uh, processors, or to pharmacies that in the end sell final product. So uh, if through you know, an association you all can sit together and agree on some uh, commonly accepted standards for how you collect a sample, how you test for the sample, how you report the results, how you interpret the results. Uh, uh, that I think would be very helpful to all of you to kind of set a uniform quality standard that everybody can live by. Are there standards anywhere in the country in other states? Not to my knowledge, not to that detail level. And that's why uh, you always get the discussion, oh, I sent my sample to this lab and I got this number, and I sent the same sample to another lab and I get a totally different number. But California, Oregon has established their own? They, what they have done is they, they do have, California has a 120 page document uh, as to quality parameters in hemp, uh, and that was written predominantly for medicinal hemp, for medicinal purposes. Uh, call it medical drug kind of usage uh, and they adhere closely to FDA guidelines that are established for pharmaceuticals uh, or nutraceuticals and uh, even though they specify certain tests that need to be performed in some great detail they do not tell you exactly how you have to sample. They don't exactly tell you what moisture level you should do the measurement at. They don't prescribe uh, what kind of method in detail you have to use. You know, They don't say, oh, you have to use a Shimatsu instrument or a Waters instrument. They don't go into that kind of detail. So if you're testing, if you're testing for CBD, uh, all these different 20 parameters you were talking about, how much of a difference is it going to make, say, between 14 or 17% of CBD? Is it going to make 14 actually with 10? So you are asking the variability of... So I test, somebody sends me a sample that they tested and it says it's 15% CBD. And I test it and it comes back and what's, what's the variance going to be? Plus or minus one? Uh, we, we have seen between different labs, uh, and we have involved in, been involved in some of these tests uh, where somebody split a sample multiple ways and sent it off to different labs, and we got to see the results. Uh, and they were quite different. They were sometimes 20% different. Yeah, so the, what we found is that extraction with any kind of organic solvent whether you use ethanol or methanol or magic mixtures of octanol and hexane and God knows what else, 
uh, or supercritical CO2, uh, the drier your hemp sample is, the better your extractability or your extraction efficiency. And uh, if you have some sort of uh, homogenization step in there that either a grinding step or milling step that takes your dried plant material and really mills it down to small particles, again, your extraction efficiency will go up. And I think hemp, uh, the cannabinoids essentially like to go into non-polar organic solvents. They don't like water all that much. They're not. There are some ways you kind of can estimate it, yes. So one way is you weigh your sample, then you dry it down and weigh it again. Uh, and that way you get at how much moisture you can lose during your drying process. So that gives you a rough idea. If you imagine the wet plant typically holds about 80% moisture uh, or 80% of your, your plant is water. In, in my book, not really. Uh, you, the drier, the better. So if, if I if I want if if I really want to know how much cannabinoid is in your hemp sample, I put it in the freeze dryer, which is the gentlest way to remove water because the sample stays frozen at all times. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And make sure that you subscribe to the iHemp Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Give us a review and follow us on facebook.com forward slash iHempRevolution. Like us and then tell your friends. Help us spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. This is your host. Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and thanks for joining the iHemp Revolution.